0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cirkin Research Podcast. We have my new co-host here, Victoria Gamlin, who's a brand strategist and head of marketing here at Cirkin Research. So on our first episode, we covered how B2B marketing isn't broken, but that it was built this way, and the effect that VC funding has had on B2B marketing, along with a slew of other topics. Before I asked to have you come on permanently as my co-host, I wanted to have you back as a guest to discuss positioning. And it's great timing, since you recently published a 40-page piece on positioning and messaging, as well as a shorter piece on why most B2B positioning fails. Both are fantastic pieces. I recommend everyone go out and read, and they'll both be linked in the show notes. So we're going to talk about the first piece today, which is a magnum opus on your approach to all things positioning, point of view, and messaging. Um, But first, when you initially came on as a guest, you were living in Scottsdale and running a cleaning business in addition to your marketing work. Um, But there have been some changes since then. So what's new in your world?
1: Yes, lots of changes. Uh, No more cleaning business for now. Um, I came to a point where I had to choose between marketing and building that business. And I chose marketing. Um, I'm still very much interested in the boring business space, and I learned a ton. And for anyone wondering why on earth I started a cleaning business, that's a valid question. Um, I wanted to build something that I could exit from. My work is very lucrative, uh, but I am the product and the service. I also had a micro agency that specialized in local SEO, which is crucial for local service businesses. And cleaning is really interesting to me. So that's mm-hmm. so why I chose that. Uh, but like I said, it, came time to make a choice between that and marketing consulting. And, you know, you really have to be all in with a business to grow it. So I chose marketing for cash flow reasons for now. Um, And then yes, no longer in Scottsdale, I moved to Mexico City for the foreseeable future. I love Mexico, the culture, the Spanish language. So I'm here soaking up CDMX and trying to go from proficient to fluent in Spanish.
0: So I want to start with how you found yourself in this world. Uh, How did you first get into positioning?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of a funny story. Um, I talk about it in the piece a bit in the appendix, but I had zero intention of getting into positioning, actually. I was literally just trying to be a copywriter who specialized in brand voice. I've been writing since I could talk, but I really rejected this idea of doing it for my job because I didn't want to be a starving artist, which is just how I envisioned mm-hmm. writers for mm-hmm. some reason. Um, but then I finally surrendered to writing and you know, felt like I'd found my thing with that and was just trying to mind my own business with copywriting. Um, so my first positioning project was not called that. It was a project for website copy, and it was for an agency, and the client was a large B two B payment processing company. So they bring me on to write the website copy. Uh, I was super excited uh, for two reasons. Uh, first, it was an inbound lead, which when you're trying to make it as a freelance creative, is a big deal. Um, you know, someone pursuing you for your skills and. Mm-hmm. Then I'm also a sucker for super dry, boring businesses. Uh, so this company, uh, like I said, was payment processing and it doesn't get much more boring than in tech. Um, so we do the typical ridiculously long agency onboarding process. Uh, and then the agency quote unquote briefs me uh, on the client. Um, and it was just the typical, they hate their website copy. They want something less corporate with more personality and um, they have a brand awareness issue. Mm. Um, and then they give me their brand strategy PDF, which was, absolute fluff. Um, and they didn't even tell me what they sold beyond B2B payment processing. Um, and none of that was on the current website. So I couldn't educate myself.
0: So so they wanted you to write on their behalf, but they can't even give you the foundational understanding of what they do.
1: Exactly. And this is when I realized that you know the issue with their website copy wasn't that it was too corporate or too stodgy. The issue was a lack of clarity on what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, something is corporate when it's not backed up or specific enough. It's not a tone or a vibe or certain words. Um, Conversational copy can absolutely still be corporate if it's out of touch. Um, And nor did they have a brand awareness issue because you have to understand they were driving millions in revenue, um, partnerships and sponsorships with major brands like Mercedes-Benz. So I'm sorry, people know who you guys are according to your bank account and according to who you work with. They're aware of you. They just don't know how your solution is relevant to their problem. You know, they know who you are. They just don't care essentially. So yeah, in short, like most companies, I think they were trying to fix a bullet wound with a bandaid. Um, they didn't just need website copy. They needed positioning. And more specifically, they needed a point of view um, about the problem they solved. B2B payment processing is very saturated. And like I said, I think this is true of most companies and true of many copywriters. I see copywriters um, you know, giving cute little tips and formulas on how to write a catchy B2B website headline, not realizing that your website headline is the expression of your positioning. So you need to nail that first.
0: Yeah, that that story resonates with me so much. Um, While you've been on the receiving end of these requests, I've been guilty of asking for them. Um, I've been the client who thought I needed website copy. And and to be clear, I did. I did need website copy. But without realizing it, I was actually asking for the foundation of positioning as well.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And honestly, based on what they gave me and you know, based on the fact that I couldn't find more information, I literally couldn't write a sentence about them, even if I tried. It wasn't a matter of principle mm. that I couldn't write. <laughs> I cognitively couldn't do it because copy is assembled. It's not written. Um, so what I was experiencing was the equivalent of telling someone to build a house without giving them
0: any materials or telling them where it was supposed to even be built. Yeah, uh, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and the other piece that stood out to me from that story is Really, how common that situation is, I mean you know position is the prerequisite to assembling copy, and therefore a ton of copywriters are unspokenly being asked to do positioning as well.
1: yeah, I'd say so, um you know, like I said in that story, and I've said in part two of um this longer piece, few companies have established actionable positioning, and because website copy is the expression of positioning, if you are writing website copy, you are most likely doing positioning,
0: yeah, and there's a really interesting point you made. In a separate piece uh, on the differences between B2B and B2C marketing, um, you talk about the million micro decisions that get made and micro experiences just to produce a single line of copy. And so for B2B marketers who are pushing to pull from B2C, I'd highly encourage you to read that one as well uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, still waiting on that super creative B2C marketing for B2B SaaS that people have been campaigning
0: for.
3: Should be any day now.
0: Um, So that was your first (laughs) programming project. Um, so just give us some context, when was that and how did you get to where you are today? And you know, where are you today, Victoria?
1: (laughs) Great question. So yes, that was my first positioning project. Uh, that was about a year ago, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, and I actually didn't go all in with positioning after that. Like I said, I actually wasn't trying to get out of copywriting at all. Um, and then a few people around me nudged me to get out of strictly writing and more into strategy, which. I was already in. um, I was running marketing and creatively directing for a restaurant group, um, as well as executing everything except the SEO and paid media. Uh So from that first positioning project I was just talking about, uh, I continued to do more copywriting with a brand voice specialization. But then I got pretty burnt out between trying to build my copywriting business and running marketing for the restaurant group. I was doing their photography, web design, newsletters, social media, and then overseeing Uh, the overarching marketing strategy. And it was awesome. Um, It was my creative baby and I'm incredibly proud of what I built for them. It's incredibly expensive cognitive bandwidth wise. And so few companies understand that or respect that. Um, So I just started Mm -hmm. strictly consulting on positioning, messaging and brand voice Um, But it just kind of turned into this, you know, if you give a mouse a cookie type situation where I couldn't not do copywriting in some regard. Uh, And it's also just too painful to build the positioning, messaging and brand voice and watch people just botch it after creative control is really, really important to me, which is part of why I work with smaller clients. Um, So all this to say, (laughs) today, the LinkedIn bio version is that I do positioning, messaging and consult on strategy for B2B companies. But in reality, I do everything from essentially a fractional CMO type role to building the brand voice to creating the brand voice guide for future copywriters to writing the actual copy for clients, including you.
0: So now let's talk about your positioning approach. Uh, And for anyone listening, again, we'll be referencing the bigger piece uh, and we'll do our best to explain it clearly, uh, but highly encourage you to read it for yourselves as well. So you have a couple disclaimers in your piece that I really love. Um, And the first is that if you do not have something people want to buy, there's no positioning, POV, messaging, or copy that can save you and ultimately, you, you can't market your way to success without a product or service that solves a problem that customers are willing to pay to solve.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And, and you're very clear about who your positioning approach is for. It's for companies who solve a problem that people are interested in solving and one that they're interested in paying money to solve. Read, not early stage startups. <laughs> um, there's a great line that I want to read directly. But Victoria, a good marketer knows how to sell snow to an Inuit False. A good marketer only plays where they know they can win. They don't waste their time on companies with a 90 plus percent fail rate. I love this idea of not just playing where you can win, but you also talk about playing smaller with your positioning, which is such an important point.
1: Yeah, I've always been super discerning who I work with. Um, you know, if you don't have a sound business, no amount of marketing or, you know, copywriting can save you. Um, Marketing and copywriting are so high risk. And with copywriting, especially, you know people put it on this pedestal. All these B2B marketers love the idea of copywriting, right? Uh, but the thing about pedestalizing something is that the second it doesn't deliver, it gets vilified, Okay, I get vilified, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to be very discerning um, that whoever I work with actually is something that people not only want, but are willing to pay money for.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and the other disclaimer is that you don't claim to be a positioning expert, just like you don't claim to be a copywriting or marketing expert. And to be clear, this is exactly what you do professionally, but you don't claim to be an expert because in your mind, there is no such thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, marketing is 99% contextual and it's constantly changing. So it's impossible to be an expert in it. Um, I got into it with someone who claims to be a content expert with 15 years experience. And it's like people just started leveraging content seriously. (laughs) Um, So I'm sorry, that means nothing. Right. You know, leaning on years of experience in marketing is so lazy, and it's part of why B2B marketing is so ineffective. People resting on their laurels and not realizing that no amount of knowledge about content, whatever that means, or paid search matters if you're not willing to roll up your sleeves and get to know your customers. Um, And that's even if it wasn't constantly changing, which it is. You know, claiming expertness leads to complacency. Uh, I'd call myself a positioning specialist, maybe. But even then, I don't know, it brings with it this idea that I know all and I don't. You know, I know a few things, but I don't know it all.
0: Yeah. I like the idea of specialist. And, and again, I would say the same thing about my world of research and analytics. Mm-hmm. Despite having been in the world for almost 20 years, just, there isn't a playbook I can mm-hmm. give someone. You know, the, the ultimate skill is knowing how to take the next step, but I can't tell you what to do after that until you see what happens. And you have to trust yourself to connect those dots, to continue to determine the right next step, but no two projects are ever the same.
1: Totally. Yeah. It's the same with me.
0: So you opened the positioning piece with a powerful anecdote about a conversation you had with a CMO when you were a copywriter. Um, Can you share that story? Because I think it sets the stage for what we're going to talk about.
1: Yeah. So I had a CMO reach out to me after he had read uh, one of my posts on Mm -hmm. LinkedIn. Um, So he was a CMO coming into a new B2B SaaS company and they needed new website copy. Um, And he he wasn't new. The company was new. Um, He was very accomplished he knew what he was doing. Um, You wouldn't know his name because he's too busy actually doing his job to have time to post on LinkedIn. Um, But uh, the company had about 250 paying customers. So we were on a discovery call and I asked him point blank, why do your customers buy from you? Mm
2: -hmm. And he
1: goes, because we're the best. And I said, I'm sorry, but that's not a reason. How on earth do you have 250 paying customers and you don't know why they're handing you money versus someone else? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and he started diving into what they did or whatever. But you know, long story short, he couldn't answer the question. And long story short, I did not end up writing their website copy. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, but a detail that didn't make it into the piece for clarity and narrative purposes was their product was accounting software, which to me is a commodity. Uh, you know, it's a non-negotiable for running a business of, you know, a certain size and type. Um, mm-hmm. It's also a very saturated uh, market. Um, so saying we're the best meant they were literally the best accounting software, which simply isn't possible, you know. You're the best, wise, and everyone using you. Um, they were the best for a certain group of people with a certain type of problem, but he couldn't tell me who those people were or what this problem was. And that was
0: issue. Yeah, that, that story uh, really resonates with me. And uh, I've been that founder who didn't know what I needed. Um, I thought I needed website copy, but what I actually needed was to better describe what I did and who I did it for. It, the first thing that stood out in the piece to me are the crystal clear definitions. Uh, It's honestly really helpful to see how these terms are different, but also they work together. And this is certainly true across all your content, but I've honestly never seen anyone so committed to clarifying terms.
1: (laughs) Yeah. One of my biggest beef with B2B marketers and marketers in general is their inability to give a straight answer with regards to definitions. And I'm not talking tactics and channels or marketing strategy. Obviously, you know, the answer to questions about those things is most often it depends, right? That stuff Mm -hmm. is 99% contextual. But B2B marketers really do a stunning job of complicating things that are quite simple and simplifying things that are actually quite complex. And then, you know, the things that are complex and are contextual, they'll act like it's definite. You know, steal my exact 10 step paid ads framework as if that's going to produce the same results for another company with a different product. And then the stuff that does have clear, simple, tangible definitions, again, they can't look you in the eye and give you a straight answer for them. You know, they muddle things together and, they use words interchangeably that really aren't synonyms and it's a really big problem.
0: Yeah, this really resonates with me. I've been in B2B marketing for more than 15 years and I've heard all these terms thrown around, positioning, messaging, POV, but honestly, I never had a clear understanding of what they actually meant. And so for years, I assumed it was me. I, I, just, <laughs> I just couldn't pick up what these terms, these core mm-hmm. elements were for the context clues I was given, uh, but I really think the confusion was not having clear definitions.
1: Don't worry. It's not just you. Um, But yeah, the lack of definitions is part of a much bigger issue, in my opinion, of there being so many misses when it comes to what is actually wrong with B2B marketing. Um, One of my main theses and the topic of our last podcast was how B2B marketing isn't broken. It was built this way. And then another miss is the whole war against corporate jargon and boring marketing. Boring marketing is a marketer pain point, not a customer one. Customers don't want less boring marketing. They want clearer marketing to know how much your product costs and to be able to buy it
0: when they're ready. Yeah, the key phrase there is that they are pain points, but for marketers, not for paying customers.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the same goes for gated content. Gated content is not the issue. The issue is that the quality of the content doesn't warrant gating, nor does the level of intent warrant collecting lead information based on the phase of the buyer journey someone is in. And it certainly doesn't warrant blowing up their phone or inbox after they just wanted to download a report. It has nothing to do with the gatedness of it, though.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. I, like, I love the perspective that it isn't because the content is gated, but it's because it isn't high quality. Mm-hmm. It's the most important piece and somehow continues to get overlooked.
1: Mm-hmm. And then I'd say the same thing goes for attribution. Attribution isn't broken. It just took B2B marketers 20 years to realize, wow, turns out people buy software the same way they buy everything else in a nonlinear fashion and by leaning heavily on word of mouth from friends and peers. And so this idea of last touch, which is what attribution has always been, it never promised marketers anything more. They just thought it did.
0: Yeah. Well, now you're really speaking to my soul with the attribution. (laughs) I I spent 10 years building these models for marketers who thought they would eventually get to this magical place where they could see every single activity that led to a Mm -hmm. sale. But of course, the large majority of how people buy is unmeasurable. It's on the vendor's website. And so not only is attribution not aligned with how people actually buy, but it's getting farther and farther away now
1: right and that's always been the case the only thing that's changed is that people can self-educate online versus trade shows and whatnot and that is a big shift for sure but Mm -hmm. people have always bought things the same way whether it's shoes luggage houses software it's never been linear and the issue to me was this disconnect marketers have with how people actually behave not attribution it's like they put on their marketing hat and then all of a sudden forget what it's like to buy something and then now you have B two B marketers selling back this idea of human marketing, and it's just so gross and so dumb.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. Attribution is just a tool. You know, another one of your theses: there are no good or bad tools; they're blameless neutral entities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, lastly, you know, how many times can we talk about this attribution stuff? It's so interesting to me because people think that recognizing that attribution doesn't tell the whole story will save them, and it doesn't. You know, it obviously helps, but. The people who recognized it are no better off because it's like, oh, wait, marketing is still hard. You know, they might seem like they're crushing it, but they're grasping at straws behind closed doors. You know, they're either recycling content on LinkedIn or they're just building more dashboards thinking they're solving the attribution issue or both.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, Until you can show the relationship, aka correlation, between marketing activities and business outcomes, along with the time lag between mm-hmm. them, it means nothing. It's just more data. You know, people are starting to talk about correlation, but they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. They're marketers, not analysts. Um, But we'll save the rest of that topic for another time. (laughs) Sorry, it was a bit of a tangent.
1: It was a good one, though.
0: Yeah. Um, So to me, all the things you just mentioned and what you write extensively on boring marketing, corporate jargon, gated content comes down to this fear of losing control. Mm -hmm. Marketers and sellers want to believe there are things they can do that will immediately attract new customers. And you can even see this in the way people refer to things. So calling it the sales cycle infers that the control is on the marketers and sellers to manipulate and lead the prospects into a purchase, mm-hmm. what gets missed is that the marketers and sellers aren't in control. All they can do is put the most relevant content messaging out there and make it easy for prospects to buy when they're ready. You know The buyers are in control, and that's why it's ultimately the buyer's journey. It's not the sales cycle. And you know, so, despite the fact that each of your examples have been vilified on social media, none of them are actually the things that have been holding marketers back all along.
1: Right. And, you know, I'd say the closest thing marketers can come to the control, respect, and results they crave is getting as close to the customer as possible. That's the bottom line.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. Okay, so coming back to the root of the issue and getting clear on definitions.
1: Yeah, the lack of clarification of terms is a really big problem to me. And then at the same time, this focus on creating new words that, like, nobody asked for. I feel like B2B marketers make up words that are all euphemisms for just do your job, but apparently that's not palatable to people but positioning messaging pov brand voice these are not nebulous things at all they're very tangible objective things that can have a serious impact on your business and people are starting to realize that in b2b but they're not getting serious about what they are they just post b2c ads they like and have these fluffy conversations about brand and strategy that then result in fluffy pdfs that aren't actionable then they go on linkedin and complain about how they weren't given anything actionable from the branding agency they paid a bunch of money to do their positioning and That actually gets into a separate issue, which I talk about at the end of the piece. But one of the contributing factors of this is the lack of defining what these things actually are.
0: Yeah. And you go through all sorts of detail explaining the nuances behind these terms in this piece. But the one I kept waiting on and didn't get was brand.
1: Yes. I'm glad you noticed that. Um, I did not touch on brand. Uh, To me, it's a much larger topic that can only be discussed if you understand the fundamentals, but a brand is not nebulous. You know, a brand is every single touch point of your company. And yeah, your company probably has a lot of touch points, which is why you better be clear in your positioning, messaging, and most of all your POV, because that dictates every single touch point of your company, aka your brand.
0: And the, the three main points of your piece are number one, you don't choose your positioning. Number two, the three components of effective positioning. And number three, POV ruling all. Um, So let's start with that first one. You don't choose your positioning. What what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, correct. So effective positioning uh, for a B2B company must be a perfect fit between one, what you do, aka the solution you provide, two, scalability, and three, profitability. Um, So in other words, positioning is how you state the truth of what you do and having that truth be something that both scales and makes you money.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And I see this all the time in our client projects. You know, Companies will be leading their messaging with things they think are important to their ICP. Sometimes they're pretty close, but in a lot of cases, it's clear that their messaging and content wasn't resonating because it's just not in line with what matters to their buyers.
1: Yeah, it's pretty wild to watch B2B marketers quote unquote struggle with things uh, when the answers are right in front of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. And I've referred to the research we do as getting the answers to the test in advance.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Next up. Your three components of effective positioning, so what you call the facts, the point of view or POV, and messaging. And I'm curious, and I'm sure the audience is too, it may, maybe not, um, but how and where did you come up with these?
1: Yeah, maybe not. Um, no, it's a great question. Um, so these three components are the byproduct of my positioning, messaging, and copywriting work from both the view of a copywriter, but also... As someone who has spent money on tools and knows what questions need to be answered before giving a company money in exchange for software. Um, So they're the byproduct of reverse engineering that SaaS customer piece with my knowledge of what it takes to build copy, which is the expression of positioning. But as far as how the piece came about in terms of synthesizing this all, which is when I came up with these three components, um, Mm -hmm. that was an entirely separate, very arduous process um, that the catalyst of which was witnessing too many people talking about positioning and messaging who either don't actually do it or who do it, but aren't copywriters. And we'll get into why that's an issue later on. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying mine is the correct way. Um, It's simply the approach I take to positioning and messaging and explain why I take it. Um, But yeah, I got tired of seeing people who really shouldn't be speaking on these things speak far too comfortably and inaccurately on them. So I decided to do something about it.
0: Well, I'd say a 40-page piece is a pretty sufficient example. <laughs> um, you know, you go to great lengths to explain them, and I love how you define them by the questions that they answer. So, so tell me, what are the three components and what questions do they answer? And then we'll come back and dig into each.
1: Yeah, so the three components are the facts, point of view, or POV, and messaging. So the facts answers, what are we doing here? Point of view answers, what do we have to say about what we're doing here? And messaging answers, how are we going to talk about what we're doing here?
0: So, what are the facts that are most relevant to a company's positioning?
1: Yeah. So for me, there's five questions that need to be answered under the facts. And just to preface, nothing in this approach is proprietary or special. Uh, I cannot stress how fundamental all these questions are. Mm -hmm. Um, so here's what they are. Uh, number one, what does our product or service do? Number two, how does it work? Number three, who is our product or service a good fit for? Number four, who isn't our product or service a good fit for? And number five, what do we do that our competition doesn't? Um, so effective positioning must be a perfect fit between what you do, profitability, and scalability. But it's also about fit within the market, meaning it's not just about being the best, um, You know, which is why we're the best wasn't positioning when the CMO
2: mm-hmm. said mm-hmm.
1: that. Um, it's about differentiation, first and foremost. Um, and that comes from disqualifying. So question four, who isn't our product or service a good fit for? Um, and figuring out what you do differently from your competitors. So question five, which is, what do we do that our competition doesn't? Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, and as you say, if you cannot tell me what your product or service does without using adjectives, you don't have a product or service worth buying. Uh, And (laughs) and I love the distinction you make about how you're different from your competitors, not necessarily why you're better. Speaking of fit, we need to talk about the photo you chose for this piece. Um, (laughs) And in reality, we need to talk about all of your photos that you use for your pieces. (laughs) Um, and this photo in particular, I didn't get it at first. And then when I did, I was like, yep, that's brilliant.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. So for anyone who's not looking at the photo, which is most likely everyone listening to this, um, the photo for the piece is called Goldilocks. Um, it's one of my street photos. Um, so in it, there's two people, one's really short and one's really tall. Um, I took it on the L train in Chicago. Um, yeah. And I, I picked that one cause positioning needs to be just right.
0: So I didn't realize when we first met that all of the photos you use across the pieces in your blog are your own work. Um, you and I talked when we had you on the last time that you had been a photographer in the past, but but tell me a little bit about where some of these came from.
1: Yeah. So I used to be a full-time photographer uh, before I got into marketing and copywriting. And so uh, one of my bodies of work is street photography. So I have a lot of photos that I really love and I'm quite proud of. So I uh, selfishly started a blog. <laughs> so, um, the blog posts are secondary. It's, it's really just for the photos. <laughs>
0: Um, Well, I'd say the photography is very impressive, um, and it's really up there with your writing. Uh, If I'm going to be perfectly honest, only you would be able to show off that kind of range in both photography and writing. So yeah, it works. But the section on strategic narrative was super interesting to me. Um, You see a lot on LinkedIn about the importance of strategic narratives and brand stories, but you didn't touch on them in the piece and listed the reasons why. Um, So tell us more.
1: Uh, Yeah, so strategic narratives and brand stories are two different things, um, but they're used to accomplish the same things oftentimes. Um, hence why I'm lumping them together. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first reason I don't touch on them in the piece is kind of what I just said. They are too often discussed without understanding the gravity of nailing. Um, you know, they're usually nothing more than the result of pillow fight strategy meetings, the piles of feathers from which former copywriters like myself are tired of receiving and expected to be able to do something with. Um, second, uh, they're too often pursued in place of getting to know uh, their idle customers. Um, You know, no potential customer has ever thought to themselves, like, you know, I would have gone with that software company, uh, but they didn't have a strategic narrative that resonated with me. You know, there's so many other issues and reasons why they didn't um, turn to a customer. Um, For example, you know, you didn't clearly articulate what you do and how it was relevant to them. Um, You didn't provide pricing or you botched the demand capture, you know, by shuffling them around between multiple SDRs. Um, and making it impossible to buy when they were really ready to hand you their money. Um, mm-hmm. And then lastly, you know, companies whose strategic narratives or brand stories that do drive meaningful revenue, they've, they've nailed their foundation of their positioning. Um, and once you know your positioning, your strategic narrative or brand story practically writes itself.
0: Yeah, I, I love the analogy you use that strategic narratives and brand stories are the home movie theaters of marketing tactics. Uh, When building a house, you need to figure out your plumbing and electricity, i.e. your positioning before even considering investing in those things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, the moral of the story is if you think your company's issue is that it's lacking a strategic narrative, but you have not answered the questions, you know, that I just went over, um, or Mm -hmm. your team cannot agree on the answers, a lack of strategic narrative or brand story is not your issue.
0: This is a meaty topic. And ironically, like you said, became the POV of your piece, if you will.
1: Yeah, which was not intentional. I mean, none of my content starts intentionally, but then it becomes hyper-intentional down to what photos I use. Mm, Um, But all my content comes to me just from being in the fields. We talked about this in the last episode. Um, Mm. You know, if you're struggling to write content, then don't, especially new writers. No one cares what you have to say because you have nothing to say. It's not a diss, it's just true. We've all been there. I've been there. Um, Go put your head down for six months and I promise you'll have a deluge of ideas That's what I did. Um, But back to this piece, you know, as I was writing it, that's, um, that's how I realized how critical the POV part was for positioning. I knew that in my work, but it wasn't until I went to write about it that I saw that this is the missing piece that so many people miss. Um, Yeah, like you said, ironically, POV was the POV.
0: Um, Okay, so then speaking of which, how do you define POV?
1: Yeah, so the facts answers, what are we doing here? And then POV answers, what do we have to say about what we're doing here? In other words, what is our unique perspective as it relates to the solution we provide, or what is our non-unique perspective as it relates to our solution that we express in a unique way? Mm. Um, And that second part is super important. Um, You know, there's nothing new under the sun, which means your POV can be a quote-unquote old idea, but simply expressed in a new way. Um, The most impactful POVs are just subtle tweaks on age-old ideas,
3: in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and I'd say that our POV at Cirkin Research fits that mold exactly. Um, we do quantitative bio research to help our clients learn what matters most to their ideal customers, and the concept itself is not new at all. Mm-hmm. Um, our POV is that we begin with the end in mind, and there's a few different applications in our work, clearly defining our, our client's goals before starting a research project, identifying the output, i.e. content in advance, and how we develop our research. So we start with the story our client wants to tell in the market and then work backward. And we ask ourselves what would need to be true in order for that story to matter to their ICP. Mm -hmm. And so while buyer research is as old of a concept as marketing and advertising themselves, and even beginning something with the end in mind, a lot of industries and professions require starting with the end vision. It was the layering of that POV onto research that became the quote unquote compelling part of the, the POV.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And so what made this piece of yours stand out to me is your focus on POV in addition to the length, depth, and granularity of the advice and the examples. Um, but most people just talk so broadly and vaguely about positioning and really say nothing. Um, but you have an official thesis, which is that effective positioning requires a compelling point of view.
1: Yeah. So like I said, POV is the crucial, too often missing piece of effective positioning. It's, you know, considered a nice to have when it's really a non-negotiable mm-hmm. Um, And your POV doesn't just become the foundation for your messaging as well as your brand voice and then eventually your copy, but your entire marketing strategy because it will impact your target audience because a compelling POV inherently must disqualify Um, because in order to be compelling, it must be unique, right? There must be contrast to stand out. um, And that means implicitly or explicitly, uh, depending on how unskilled your copywriter is, (laughs) saying, no, we're not for this group of people or this group of companies, right? Right. so your POV is going to dictate what channels and tactics you use because that's mm-hmm. dictated by your target audience and your ICP. So in short, POV dictates everything. And you know all these B2B marketers want Apple and Nike copy, not realizing that, number one, B2C brands address universal truths in a way that B2B software companies never will. And number two, that copy derives from an established, compelling POV.
0: Yeah. And you have a great graphic uh, you made showing this, really how POV rules all. Um, in addition to the examples of, from your own work, uh, which I really appreciate. Um, and I also appreciate how you point out that the all the alleged messaging and positioning experts on the internet never use their own work.
1: Yeah, that was really important to me for this piece. And part of why it took so long, you know, my work uh, already is, um, takes time and then, you know, to turn around and write about it took mm-hmm. a lot longer than I expected. Um Yeah, I think it's super bizarre that these alleged positioning and messaging experts never use examples of their own work. And by bizarre, I mean shockingly predictable because they don't (laughs) actually do it for a living. Um, Or if they do, they don't create anything that can be given to writers because they're not writers. Uh,
0: But speaking of doing this for a living, you had an interesting point about POV. Um, You mentioned that when you do positioning projects, what you're actually paid for is to find their POV, whether they realize it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And this line from your piece had a great analogy. And you wrote, I uncover their unique perspective. I mine for the gold for them, then guide them on how to turn it into jewelry they can sell. But the gold must be there. I'm a consultant, not an alchemist. And this also relates back to the disclaimer from the beginning um, that we talked about, is that they must have a valuable solution to a problem that people are willing to pay to solve.
1: When people talk about positioning, they're usually talking about POV. um, And this Mm -hmm. is a really important distinction. Uh, Along with a refusal to disqualify, this is where I see so many companies go wrong with their positioning you know, what is our point of view about X is really what you need to be answering when you ask, how do we position ourselves? Um, and your POV is what connects the facts or the fundamental information about your business to your messaging. And it's also what holds your brand together, which explains why, you know, so many B2B companies struggle to build one because they don't have a compelling POV. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to why POV rules all, like I said, POV impacts target audience and ICP, who your product or service is a good fit for and who isn't your product or service a good fit for. Um, mm-hmm. And POV is what you lean on if you don't have an answer for what you do differently than your competitor. If you don't have an answer for that, you need to pursue a brand play, which means leaning on your POV for differentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, so while the facts or the fundamental information about your business are important, POV is actually pulling the strings with your positioning. So I talk about a former fintech client. Um, they were in corporate finance. Uh, their POV was essentially you know, this idea that banks are partners, not punching bags. Mm-hmm. Um, Their business model was rev share with banks, which means they only make money if their customers are growing. Uh, So their POV was compelling and worked well with their business model. Uh, You know, back to fit business model is something your POV must support as well. Um, And this POV impacted their ICP and target audience. You know, they don't want flash in the pan startups. They will not be bashing banks in any of their messaging like all the other corporate finance startups do.
0: Yeah, and I, I love the idea that their POV is about how they're complementary with banks instead of mm-hmm. just following the competition. And and then again, also not making it in reference to the old way of doing things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, and you know something to note about this FinDeck client, back to the whole, if you don't sell a solution to a problem that people are willing to pay money for... Um, solve this was an inverse situation of that so this client was not backed by svb uh they were backed by a lesser-known bank and this was actually an obstacle for them you know people wanted the brand name of svb um Mm. but all of a sudden people needed a corporate finance partner who wasn't backed by them and this client got an influx of business um because they had something people didn't just want but needed
0: (laughs) it's funny how quickly that liability turned into an asset
1: yeah totally um and then my sound design clients pov That it doesn't matter if your brand is audible, if it's not the right sound, impacts their target audience and ICP. They will not work with brands who are jumping on the Sonic logo bandwagon out of FOMO and just wanting something yesterday. And their POV also impacts their messaging. You know, I refuse to use the phrase cutting through the noise, not just because it was literally on every single Sonic agency's website, but also because it signals that all sound is created equal, and that would contradict their POV.
0: Yeah, and and on the whole compelling POV front, I had an aha moment from our work together that really illuminates the need for differentiation versus being better than. And it kind of goes back to the CMO anecdote, actually, but I wanted to touch on it for anyone who does marketing at a small company who competes with industry heavyweights. Um, I used to get so caught up in how I saw our offering as being better than what big firms like Gartner and Forrester deliver, but it was a very different lens to look at it from wanting to show how we're different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's a value in what they provide, uh, but we wanted to be really clear to our ideal customers about how we specifically help them.
1: For sure. Yeah. The move wasn't to bash Forrester or Gartner. You can't compete with them even if you wanted to. I mean, your work absolutely destroys theirs, but from a brand perspective, I mean, you don't stand a chance, Um, but they do market research, which is a completely different process and has a completely different outcome from what Circan Research does, which is demand research. So this includes sentiments and philosophies, phrases, adjectives, Um, what are we doing here, Uh, POV answers, what do we have to say about what we're doing here, and messaging answers, how are we going to talk about what we're doing here. Um, So in other words, how are we going to express the facts and our POV in a way that resonates with our ideal customer profile and our target audience. So this includes sentiments and philosophies, phrases, adjectives, Uh, are there multiple personas, if so, what differences do we need to be mindful of when addressing them. Mm -hmm. Um, What language and phrasing are we going to stay away from because A, it's inconsistent with our POV or doesn't support it. B, it's already being used by a competitor or C, our customers simply don't speak like that. So, um, oh, and do we have any proprietary phrases we want to coin? Um, Mm -hmm. So those are all the questions I answer when developing messaging for a client.
0: Yeah, that's really illuminating for me that messaging and copy are how you translate your positioning to your target audience. Correct. Correct. And so then coming back to where we started the conversation, again, I've been that leader asking for copy because that's the external facing piece and honestly understanding the terms better myself. And then you do messaging and then you do copy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, sometimes I'll think of a tagline right off the bat because Mm -hmm. my brain thinks in headlines and taglines, um, aka I will think of copy before nailing some of the foundational stuff. Uh, but I don't actively pursue that first. I'm not like, what's the headline of the website going to be, you know, when I'm (laughs) meeting with a client for the first time.
0: Yep. 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 Um, and you also have some great examples from a brand voice guide that you did for a client in there bashing the quote unquote, the old way.
1: Yeah. B2B SaaS copy is rife with a few things, including saviorism and bashing the old way. Um, and those things aren't only sleazy and gross and that the copy is attempting to make the audience feel grateful for product features that are really just table stakes, but it's just lazy copywriting, full stop. You know, bashing things falls under pick an enemy positioning and messaging, which is just foolish indolence. So yeah, I have a zero tolerance policy for either of those things with my clients. And also if people are still doing something, it's not old. So bashing, you know, the old way literally makes no sense.
0: Yeah. And again, I mean, this brand voice guide was so specific on what not to say
1: Yeah, exactly. So that third one, um, the third question I mentioned above, which no one remembers what it was, but it was what language and phrasing are we going to stay away from is super key. And that's what I highlighted in um, the brand voice guide examples in this piece. You know, just like very few companies are willing to disqualify with their target audience. So many marketing and branding teams don't understand the importance of establishing uh, what messaging you will never use. You know, they'll start off strong with clear messaging that's in line with the facts and their POV if they have one, which they probably don't. You know, and slowly but surely, their messaging starts looking and sounding like everyone else's because they haven't set up those boundaries. Yeah, it's also really important to establish boundaries on ideas and philosophies, not just specific phrases, to train copywriters to think critically and to shorten feedback loops. You know, otherwise, you'll just have to spell out every single combination of words that they shouldn't be using.
0: So, on that note, uh, you mentioned before that you specialize in brand voice. And then this section is examples from a brand voice guide that you did. Um, tell us more what you mean by that because most people don't understand what brand voice is.
1: Yeah, so Brand Voice is actually highly technical and objective. Um, Abby Woodcock and Justin Blackman are two writers who crack the code on Brand Voice, and it's super Mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, I did one of their cohorts where they teach their method for both building Brand Voices as well as building Brand Voice guides as a service offering. I think Abby kind of started the work after wanting some sort of reference books that journalists have. Mm -hmm. And then justin got a hold of her work and ran with it and now they teach together so yeah abby did the voice guide for you know ram and Sethi, all these a lot of these uh, well-known solopreneurs oh. they won't write their own stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> but basically they uh realized that brand voice is no different than music uh, it can be measured and therefore duplicated and it has certain objective data points including you know average sentence length average comma usage punctuation for example i could literally tell you how my linkedin writing voice is different from my email writing voice, from my texting writing voice, um, et cetera. And from a technical standpoint, not just, you know, different vibes or whatever. Um, You know, my writing on LinkedIn has a much more formal and academic feeling, but there are objective things that make it so. It has a different vibe because of the technical pieces. You know, my sentences on LinkedIn, they're much longer. There's a lot more words per sentence on there compared to other platforms I write on. So yeah, when B2B marketers on LinkedIn are like, ooh, I love Oatly's Brand Voice, B2B SaaS needs Brand Voices like this. It's like, no, first off, you don't know the first thing about Brand Voice. Second, you like what they have to say, for starters. But more importantly, you like that they have something to Mm -hmm. say. You like how they view the world in relation to the problem that they solve, aka you like their point of view. Again, POV dictates literally every single piece of your marketing, including Brand Voice.
0: So yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, I've certainly heard a ton of people on social media talking about how much they like certain brands' voices,, um, but it's always felt like it's the general vibe they're referring to.
1: yeah, exactly. you know, very few copywriters understand the technicality of brand voice, and those things are super important to understand to scale a company's brand voice consistently across channels or even across one channel if you have multiple writers. but, You know, in my experience in B2B, it's more of a lack of an established, compelling POV that contributes the most to an inconsistent, aka ineffective brand voice.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking back to your piece on lexical density, where you point out that, no, you don't need to know what lexical density is to be an effective writer. And it kind of sounds like similar here, where does knowing the technicalities of brand voice make you a stronger copywriter? Absolutely. But is it required to make it as a copywriter? No.
1: Right. Exactly. Not having a compelling POV to then craft your messaging and brand voice from and then your copy from will cause more harm than, say, not understanding how the Hemingway tool works and how copy that comes in at a lower reading grade level isn't technically less intelligent or doesn't just convert better randomly, but has less words in the sentence and is therefore inherently more clear often at conveying the point. Hence why it converts Mm. more.
2: Um, You know,
1: what I'm trying to get is (laughs) knowledge of the technical is not required for effective copy. But you must understand that you must have something holding your messaging brand voice and copy together. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same in your work. An analyst does not need to be as good at Excel as you are, you know, to be able to see patterns and understand the overarching themes and context within a huge pile
2: of data.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I see this all the time with analysts and, and data scientists. Like you said, it doesn't matter how good you are in Excel or writing Python or R scripts. But if you don't understand what the data is and how it impacts the business strategy and outcomes you won't be able to deliver valuable analysis. And frankly, I wouldn't hire you. The thing I found most valuable about your piece is how actionable it is. And the level of granularity and detail is unmatched, and especially coming right from your direct experience. You know, the high level stuff can be important, but similar to my work, if it's not actionable, it really doesn't matter. Yeah,
1: exactly. You know, this piece was built on my experience, not theory. I found so much talk about positioning and messaging is theory by People who, I mean, to be honest, I don't know what they do for a living. They post way too much content on LinkedIn or Twitter to have actual jobs. But, you know, then again, it is all very surface level content. So I guess they would have time to work. Um, But, you know, I have a feeling people will read this piece and be like, okay, but how do I do it? How do I find a POV? And yeah.
0: Yeah. And and what's out to me and from our discussion as well is how different every client, every project is for finding those POVs. Yeah, You had two really interesting examples that you break down, but can you share those quickly for anyone who hasn't read the piece?
1: Yeah. So I found the point of view for that fintech company mm-hmm. in an offhand comment the CEO made on a podcast I was listening to. When he said it, I was like, that's it. That is why you're different in this super saturated market. Um, I don't want to say it um, because I don't want to give them away. But basically, it was, again, this idea that they fill in where banks... Left off,
2: right? right. Um,
1: but banks aren't mm-hmm. bad. Um, and then for the sound design client, I ended up going down this rabbit hole of how the brain processes sound to find a way to differentiate. Um, and you know, I couldn't template that because I had no idea where I was going to go. Um, in both of those cases, it's literally just finding a starting point, then pulling the thread and just doing the next right thing. Um, you know, you cannot template common sense. Um, I'm sorry. And if you do need a template for common sense, you know, you have far bigger issues than a lack of a compelling POV.
0: Yeah, and and I really love that website copy. You had shared that with me uh, uh, offline. And the thing that stands out to me as you're telling the story is how smart every part of that was and how it highlights exactly why it can't be templated. Not only can your process not be templated, but it also isn't linear. You know, at every step, you're assessing the situation, and all you can do is make the next right move. Um, I completely get why this is a 40-page piece and not a five-step LinkedIn post telling people how to do it for themselves. Like you just prove how impossible it would be to templatize your process for finding it.
1: Yeah. And that nonlinear piece is important. So thank you for calling that out. That is why it can't be templated. Um, Not just the common sense part, but kind of those things in tandem, it is not linear. Um, So there's no step by step process. Um, Like I have said, my questions are not proprietary. You just need to answer them somehow, some way, whether you do them in the order I suggest or not is up to you. Um, And yeah, I mean, I have no doubt people are super unsatisfied with this piece. And that was the point. People need to learn the fundamentals and the basics and build based on their customers' needs and wants.
0: Since you commonly put disclaimers in your writing, I think it's fair that I announce one here for the podcast. Uh, Because we're doing an episode dedicated to positioning, we're unfortunately legally required to talk about category (laughs) creation. So I see it often suggested as a way of creating your own game and setting yourself up in a place where you have no competitors. Uh, But what are your thoughts on category creation?
1: Yeah, exactly. Which is a fallacy. Category creators absolutely have competition. They have the hardest competition of all in action and their target audience's current status quo. To me, category creation is code for we can't articulate what we do, but we know if we tried, we'd be in an existing category with big players that we're too scared to compete with. Why are we scared? Because we don't know how to differentiate, because we refuse to disqualify anyone from our target audience, because we really don't know our customers. So we're just going to try to win over the entire internet. Yeah. Category creation, strategic narratives, and brand stories are all just drugs companies reach for to avoid looking at. One, their non-existent or weak positioning. Weak positioning equates to non-existent results, so it's the same as not having positioning. Two, their lack of customer knowledge. Or three, their shoddy demand capture or all of the
0: above. Yeah. And as you're going through that, I kept thinking that they all view themselves as special snowflakes. But rather than Mm -hmm. do the hard work of translating what makes them unique to their audience, they want the category to do the work for them. Mm -hmm. But but you can't just name a new category and have people flocking to buy your product. It's actually the opposite. When you claim a new space that doesn't have an association in their customers' minds, you need to work even harder to explain what you do. Um, And companies, by the way, have managed to survive this long without your entire new category existing. So the status quo bias is so much harder to overcome.
1: Yeah, exactly. People think a new category will save them and or they can avoid the work of getting clear on what they do and who they do it for. I've seen clients do it, you know, I'll be working on their POV, thinking we're all on the same page and whatnot. And and they'll be like, But what category are we in? Like as they metaphorically wring their hands, I can just tell by their tone on Slack that they're in mild agony over it. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Why are you worried about what category you're in when you can't even articulate what you do? Um, you know, I feel like a parent who Just heard their kids say something inappropriate, but knowing full well they didn't hear it from me. I want to be like, where did you learn to talk like that? Certainly not in this house. Well, so that's how it feels. But actually what it's like, it's like a startup founder worrying about what color Ferrari they're going to get before they've made a single dollar while they're still in debt to investors. What color Ferrari should I get, even though I'm broke, is the equivalent of what category are we in to me?
0: Yeah. And to quote you, it's typically nothing more than slow, anxious death by distraction.
1: You know, category creation attempts can kill an early stage startup or stunt an established company's growth if implemented incorrectly, which most of them are. But it's not the category creation that does the actual harm; it's all the other basic marketing needs that get neglected in pursuit of a new category. And you know, you kind of touched on this before. But what people in favor of category creation outright don't seem to grasp, even though they you know love their books on psychology, um, is that categories are what allow your audience to make connections. They're a reference point and. By creating a new one, mm-hmm. you're removing their footing. And so they have nothing to step onto to get to the next level, which is determining if your solution applies to them. You know, And then we get the lack of brand awareness victimhood when it's really lack of brand relevance because you just remove the only opportunity potential customers had to gain a semblance of an idea of what your company does or how your solution applies to them. But that being said, Jeff, you have aided and abetted in the category creation of a company. Um, I think you should explain how you did that for Welcome Software so people understand how to do it properly.
0: Yeah, sure. And and to clarify, again, I don't believe in leaning on category creation as an excuse to not get clear with your ideal customers about what you do. Um, but we worked with a company uh, called NewsCred over the course of a year on a variety of research projects, mainly helping to create demand content. They were a content marketing agency, but they were developing a new SaaS product in parallel that, again, eventually became known as Welcome Software. Um, And they then eventually got acquired by Optimizely. So we worked with them on a research project to test the foundation of the core positioning for the new product and the new company. So in a quantitative survey, we provided a detailed description of the product. um, And then we asked specifically how certain features and benefits resonated with the target audience. And what Welcome did, it really wasn't obviously aligned with an existing product category. They generally were special snowflakes. They helped manage the end-to-end execution of marketing campaigns, content creation, et cetera. It was similar Mm to what's referred to as work management tools in IT, but this is for marketers. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead of just claiming a new space that we came up with, we include this as part of our research. And so after the respondents were familiar with the product, we provided a few options for existing categories and a couple of new ones. And the one that resonated the most was a new category, which became known as marketing orchestration software. So you guys didn't actually create the category, the market did? Yes, exactly.
1: And that's the difference to me between category creation as it's typically done, you know, with a bunch of people sitting in a room and brainstorming and category creation done correctly. Because if you're not building your positioning, your category, your anything from ICP Insight, what are you building it from?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm not just saying that because I own a research company. It's really true by process of elimination.
1: It is pretty convenient, though, that you own a research company.
0: Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. So something I want to talk about that wasn't a big part of your piece, but I thought it was fascinating because so many B2B marketers love to talk about it is that you come for story brand positioning and no one, no <laughs> one comes for story brand until now they had a 100% of approval rating. So can you explain why?
1: Yeah. And, you know, just to preface, I personally don't think story brand is a horrible thing to consider, but I don't think it's effective for B2B SaaS at all. First off, Show me a SaaS company who is using this template for their positioning and messaging and driving revenue from it. I'll wait. Um, you know, it's one of those things marketers just post about on LinkedIn, but there's literally no proof of it working. It's just dumb LinkedIn content fodder that gets likes, and that's fine. Play the content game. Um, you know, if that's making you money, you do you. But the biggest issue with B two B marketing is that B two B marketers don't get to know their customers. They never had to. They were just handed money by VCs, which is what we dove into in our last episode and. You know, to me, Story brand is the marketing equivalent of being handed money by a VC. You don't get to know your customers because you think you have a framework that's going to save you. And you think you can just plug and play your assumptions because Donald Miller is going to save the day. And, you know, when you know your customers, you don't need a template. I'm sorry, but you don't.
0: Yeah, I used their positioning template to build a website a few years back. Uh, it does make some logical sense. Uh, the bigger issue to me that you're touching on is it's essentially letting marketers off the hook. And it really feels to me like creating personas, like it's, it's putting together a bunch of assumptions in one neat little package and thinking you've got it solved. Because ultimately, the thing that's needed is to deeply understand what matters most to your ideal customers. And as we know, that's, that's a major challenge for B2B marketers.
1: Yes, it's a way of packaging your own assumptions to help you sleep better at night. It's plug and play for assumptions with no regard for the fact that those assumptions could be wrong. You know, all this stuff sounds good in theory. All the stuff that B2B marketers talk about on LinkedIn sounds good. But what B2B marketers don't seem to get is that you cannot pain point your way into B2B customers' lives.
0: Ooh, I like that phrasing. Um, Explain what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, no amount of quippy copy or clever marketing or story brand positioning will make a business owner purchase a product that isn't a fit or doesn't make sense for their business, particularly $50,000 a month software. And that's why it's so important to get hyper clear on who you are or aren't for and speak directly to your ideal buyer. And you know, I honestly just don't think B2B SaaS marketers realize how people buy software, what it's like actually, uh, and how stressful it is and how you literally just want someone to answer questions about what your product does, how it does it, and then to let me buy it. Um, You know, I bought a lot of software for both myself and my clients. And that's really all I want as a B2B SaaS buyer. I, I don't need to be delighted. I need information. I need facts. And, you know, yes, the tactics might be moving more in line with how customers buy, you know, with demand gen or whatever, Um, which by the way, it took B2B marketers 20 years to realize that people buy software the same way they buy everything else, mainly through word of mouth. But now they're talking to their audience like they're their friends. And I personally find the story brand concept super infantilizing. It's both arrogant and childish in the B2B context. You know, solopreneur coaching is different, I think. Um, It's still arrogant and childish and infantilizing, but it actually works and drives revenue in that context. So it's fine. And just to back up really fast, sorry, we probably should have explained uh, StoryBrand in the beginning of this uh, conversation, but StoryBrand is based on uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and the premise of this uh, template, um, which was created by Donald Miller, uh, is to make your customer the hero of the story. But you know, I'm sorry, SaaS customers don't need a hero, even if it's themselves. They need a software solution that doesn't get them fired on the enterprise side and on the SMB side. They need something that makes business owners hate their life just a little bit less. Um, And both groups need something that either grows their bottom line or
0: simply protects it. They need a company that's willing to look them in the eye, tell them what they do, how they do it, and for how much in their language, not some made up one, because B2B marketers can't come to grips with the fact that they sell software to software companies. And if you can't do that, then you need to get out of their face. Direct quote from your conclusion.
1: (laughs) Correct. And, you know, I, I touched on this in our last episode, but. Marketers selling to SMBs, go follow around a small business owner for a day. Go see what they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, even a good day. No software solution can change how hard it is to run an SMB, at least in the beginning, especially if you're an owner-operator. Literally just to run, not even to be profitable, just to not die. And they need a software company with enough humility to get to know them. And there are very few out there. And you know, same with a white-collar CEO. It's really hard to run a business. And if StoryBrand helps you get clear on some things, great. But it does not solve the lack of humility issue with regards to customer research and B2B marketing. And that is the biggest obstacle. Not that B2B marketers don't have a template for their positioning and messaging. You don't need a template. You don't need a category. You need to answer very basic questions about your business and your ideal customer.
0: Okay. To round out the episode, I want to talk about the last section in the piece we've been discussing. And so one of the best parts of reading to the end of your content is that's where you put your best stuff entertainment-wise.
1: Yeah, I lead with the important stuff to get the information out. But if you stay till the end,
0: that's where I put what I think is some of my best stuff. Uh, and your digs actually make really important points. And what I love is they're never digs just for the of <laughs> digs. Um, but you end with a section called A Few Warnings, uh, where you break down the different subgroups of people who give positioning and messaging advice on LinkedIn and the dangers of listening to them. Uh, it's one of the most fire sections you've ever written in my opinion. <laughs> Um, You have some killer lines in there, but I want to keep it focused on the actual warnings because I think they're really important. So you've broken these, quote unquote, experts down into six different overlapping subgroups, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to touch on a few of them. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Um, But first, you point out that there's an inverse relationship between how many positioning and messaging tips someone gives and how much positioning and messaging they've actually been responsible for creating. Uh, And the same grows for copywriting tips and marketing advice. I thought there's a really interesting point and kind of goes back to your comment about the CMO who's too busy doing his job to post on LinkedIn and also your point about writing being very mentally exhausting.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can tell someone doesn't actually do messaging or write copy by A, how much advice they give on it. Real copywriters know that cute little tips and swipe files won't save you when your back is against the wall of the client and B, how excited they are about it or how cool they think copywriting is. You know, being a copywriter is not fun. I'm sorry, it's 90% cognitive torture. I literally... Want to switch careers at least once during every copywriting project and see you know the fact that they even have time to write and post as much as they do uh writing is very time consuming and draining
0: yeah i, I can't even imagine uh it's exactly the feeling you're describing that drove me towards math and science in school <laughs> because there's a quote-unquote right answer that no one can argue against mm-hmm. um okay so you've identified groups of positioning and messaging experts to be wary of uh, and i want to ask you about a couple of them so the first one are those who specialize in doing positioning for pre-revenue, early-stage startups. So what is it specifically about them that people need to be aware of?
1: Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of alleged positioning and messaging experts for early-stage startups with pretty big audiences on LinkedIn, Um, but they encourage endless repositioning based on feedback. And look, I'm all for getting feedback. Regular feedback loops are crucial for all aspects of business, not just marketing, but Repositioning all the time based on feedback doesn't mean you're nimble and quick to adapt. It means your research is trash. If you're constantly experimenting with your positioning and messaging, it means you didn't do your due diligence the first time. And likewise, early stage typically means pre-revenue, which means no customers yet. And feedback from beta testers is not the same as customer feedback.
0: Yeah, that's such an important point. You know, the feedback is very different when it's from a paying customer or someone who would consider paying you money to use the product than from beta testers who are just playing around.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And beta tests often test features in isolation, not the entire product experience, including onboarding and whatnot. And I don't know how using silo data from cross sections of the product to make business wide decisions could possibly end well.
0: Yeah, I think about this all the time for our research projects. In order for a client to learn what matters most to their ideal buyers, the survey respondents need to be customers or ideally non-customers that fit their ICP. You know, the feedback has to be someone, again, who is paying or may consider spending money on your product. It can't just be from an audience of generic you know, IT directors to get the insight you need. Right. Um, so the next group to be wary of, and I'm going to read directly from the piece, those that have never written copy outside of their own social media posts, poorly formatted newsletters, and egregious website copy for their own companies. Uh, tell me more.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I touched on this in the beginning when I explained you know, the catalyst behind this piece. So the issue with this group, uh, aka non copywriters who give positioning and messaging advice, is that copy is how you translate your positioning to your ICP and target audience. And because this group of people doesn't actually write copy for anyone but themselves, they don't know how to communicate effectively to the people that do.
0: Yeah, I love how you put that, and, and you've really great line, you know, to explain it. Giving copywriting advice and critiquing copy in a LinkedIn post is far easier than having to do battle with a blank page on someone else's behalf.
1: Mm-hmm. It's really easy to give copywriting advice. It's really easy to give any type of advice, um, but especially when you're just regurgitating tips from someone else. But going to battle with a blank page and having your income and survival ride on your choice of words for a company is a much different story. Now, I will say a skilled copywriter can work with these fluffy PDFs and lofty attempts at positioning and messaging, but skilled copywriters are few and far between. You know, the copywriter landscape is really grim. I know it seems like everyone is one, but that's kind of the problem. Um, And this is part of why I still write copy. Um, Part of that is creative control, but part of it is that I trust very few copywriters. Mm. You know, the majority of them these days, particularly in B2B, were raised by internet courses that gave them templates and teach them cute little copywriting tips, not how to think for themselves. And you can really tell this by the way they are enamored with ChatGPT. You know, they genuinely think it's somehow going to refine their craft when... It's just going to be their downfall.
0: Yeah. You and I have talked about this in a few different ways, but in any creative field, the best of the best will never be using templates. Mm -hmm. Otherwise the best you can hope for is to sound exactly like everyone else.
1: Right. And you know, on that note, most copywriters have also been brainwashed by what I call anti-boring propaganda. So most B2B copy sounds like the target audience is an 18 year old on their first day of new student orientation, not a grown adult looking to make a software purchase that doesn't get them fired. Um, But yeah, so that's why it's important that whoever you do pay to do your positioning and messaging has been in the trenches as a writer, so they know how to translate this information that can then
3: be acted upon.
0: Be wary of hiring an architect just because they're famous, only to learn the hard way that they create blueprints that your general contractors can't use. (laughs) Um, That's how you end that section. It's a great line. Um, So the last group I want to ask you about is those who have driven meaningful growth, but as you say, only when the Fed was feeling generous. Um, But you bring up a really important point here, which is the idea of context.
1: Yeah, there are some half decent marketers out there giving marketing and positioning advice. um, But any ship can sail in fine weather. I think I brought that line up when talking about brands in our last episode. Um, But they drove meaningful growth when interest rates were much lower, capital was more easily accessible, and people's tech stack budgets were much higher. And that is no longer the case. I see all these marketing leaders giving advice about marketing during uncertain times and people just eating it up. And it's insane to me. You know, I'm sorry, B2B marketers, but you guys are on your own. It is a cold, dark world out there. And we talked about this last time, but the rest of the world outside of tech knows this about marketing. And I'm sorry, you guys have to learn the hard way that marketing that drives revenue actually takes work and critical thinking. But until you accept that, you guys aren't going to get anywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, Any success marketing leaders have had in the past is irrelevant.
1: Yeah. And the truth is, it was always irrelevant. Unless your company sells the same product at the same price point to the same companies, their opinion on how you should do your marketing is irrelevant. And in fact, I'd argue that all that stuff causes harm because it's a distraction. You know, every second you spend trying to seek out answers from quote unquote marketing experts, instead of getting to know your target audience and customers, let alone figuring out who that group is, is hurting you.
0: Well, the bad news is that it's hard to be a marketer, but the good news is that your current and future customers have (laughs) the answers. You just need to have the humility and skill to find them. Correct. Okay. I think we've done it. Uh, We've covered a lot of ground from your 40-page manifesto on positioning, POV, and messaging. And again, we'll link to the piece in the show notes, and I recommend everybody listening go read it. Um, Victoria, what's up next for us?
1: Great question. Uh, We've got several topics in the pipeline. Next, we'll be covering why B2B positioning fails and the top reasons Most companies' research reports don't drive demand, plus how to write ones that do.
0: Uh, Looking forward to it. And uh, in the meantime, thanks for being a great guest while being the co-host of the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me on our podcast.
0: (laughs) See you guys next time.